Lord, I just thank you for the ways that you've been with us throughout the ordinariness of our week, how we've seen you in our everyday work and relationships. And I pray for the families who have been separated from one another at the border. Um, Be with the children and parents of these families. Be with the decision makers who are trying to resolve these complex and tragic issues and set policies. Let your love and compassion guide them. And I pray for the foster children in Oklahoma and around our nation who have also been separated from their families. I thank you for the people who have taken it upon themselves to bring foster children into their homes and care for children who are in desperate need of stability and love. Be with the people in our congregation who have said goodbye to loved ones this week, whose marriages are in need of revival, whose mental illness is difficult to bear, who are finding it difficult to see you working in the everyday grind of life. We pray that your kingdom would come, even in the messy and the traumatic, and that your kingdom would come in the everyday. And as we listen to Pastor Chris preach, I pray that you would be, we would all be receptive to what the Spirit is trying to tell us. Thank you for our children who led us in worship tonight. Thank you for the reminder that our children are the concrete image of the kingdom among us. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And back by popular demand, we do have the whiteboard, everyone. (laughs) Oh, you're supposed to cheer when you hear good news. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Thank you, Jason. I knew we could count on you. 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting with verse 32. And I have friends who have Bibles. Uh, We uh, take a priority in reading the scriptures every single week, and if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation. If you don't own a Bible, you can have it. If you just need to borrow it for the evening, you can do that. But I want to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word for us this evening. 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, starting with verse 32. You know this story, but I want to invite you to hear it maybe for the first time and to look for things that maybe you have never seen or hear things that you have never heard before. So hear the word of the Lord. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There is no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally then consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped on the sword over it, and took a step or two to see what it would be like, for he had never worn such things before. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them, so David took them off. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them in his shepherd's bag. Then armed only with his shepherd's staff and his sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. 
Goliath walked out toward David with the shield-bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at the ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog? He roared at David that you come at me with a stick. And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, You've come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of the heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head, and then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David ran, ran quickly out to meet him, reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone. He hurled it with a sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. This is our lectionary text, but the text continues. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off his head. This is the word of God for the people of God, and let us say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So this is a story that everybody already knows. It's locked within our imaginations. We grew up with it as children. We love this story, and we wrap our own stories into it. Whether it be politics or sports or education or business, we'll say things like this. We're in a real David and Goliath battle now. But as I tell you often, it's, it's really important to recognize that these are ancient texts. And, and it's important to get our minds Uh, wrapped around the minds of the ancients or to think in the way in which the ancient people thought. It's important for us to remove ourselves from the 21st century, uh, our 21st century contemporary interpretive framework, and to look at the world like they did. We, we need to not just embrace the world that we know but we, and the story that we know, but we may need to We may need to be looking for the things that we have never thought of before than things we've never seen before. So this thing, this piece of text that we read, this ancient text, is an ancient genre uh, that is specific to, to Jewish culture. But it's not just a text so that we know that's just recording historical events. We call this a theological history. God is working in the midst of events, and, and we, need to, we need to ask ourselves the question, What does this text tell us about how God decides to save? That is the thing that we're looking for wherever we go when we read this. So, like a child grows up into maturity, stories that are repeated over and over and over. We've heard this text so many times. Stories repeated over and over and over again. They help us to mature. And we want to see the salvation of God in new ways. So as we saturate ourselves in this story, I think that we find that the story is nuanced on a couple of different levels, three levels really. Uh, and, and there are subtle shades of meaning and expression here that, that we need to be looking for. So I've divided this one 25-minute sermon into three short sermons, all right? So if 
hopefully one of them will get to you, maybe all three, okay? Sermon number one, all right? Here we go. And the whiteboard, ready? Sermon number one. Moralistic. This is the moralistic lesson that we learn here. In other words, we need to ask the question after we read this text, what lesson can I learn? What lesson can I apply? Now, most of the time when we read this story, and we imagine it through a moralistic lens. It's the way we teach our children. We immediately jump into this story, and we're able to see ourselves and our lives in the midst of the battles that we're in. Conflict and giants stand before us, and it encourages, when, it encourages us when we read a story like this because we immediately step into David's shoes. It's, it's from this vantage point. It's this sermon that we teach our kids want them to know these lessons. So naturally, we see ourselves in the place of the protagonist, David. He's never been in a battle before, but he's bold, and he's shrewd, and he's confident, and he he guarantees a victory. And then he gives King Saul a speech and a declaration that everyone in Israel, and, and it's for everyone in Israel and for every reader for that, from that point forward. He says, don't lose heart an account of this Philistine. David is just a boy. The champion Goliath is a professional killer. But David is a good shot. God helps him. And in the moment the giant falls, the lessons just come pouring out. God is on our side. The battle is already won. If God can defeat this giant, he can defeat our giants. We just need to step out in obedience and faith and confidence. Here's another lesson. Anything is possible with God. In this text, David is the hero. Goliath is the villain. If he didn't have confidence and an assured faith in God, he would have died. And Goliath is this overconfident, cultish bad guy and his people are shamed and defeated. There's this great victory that's implied when when that that David implies that if that we can if David can trust God, a great victory will be his, then we can trust God and a great victory will be for us when we have these giants to face. That's sermon number one. And I think this is a really good and a really honest way to look at this text. So, Holly and I have some friends that are in a terrible situation. Uh, Their teenage daughter was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and this week they they had to take her from New Orleans to Chicago, Illinois, to a 30-day treatment facility where they can only visit her on Saturdays from 2.30 to 4.30. She's barely my son Watson's age. My friend wrote me, and, he, and he, he used these words this week as I was studying the text. He wrote me, and he said that he was trusting in God's faithfulness to carry him through his battles. He, you can see the text. And we are trusting that this giant can be defeated. So this week, I wrote to him, and I said, she is in the greatest city on earth, and the greatest God above heaven and earth is with her and you. And he says, you're the best. As we walked into the baggage claim at Midway Airport, we passed several shops, 
Anna Catherine wanted a Cubs t-shirt, one long sleeve, one short sleeve, and we got her both. And I said, smart kid. And from now on, whenever I wear my Cubs hat or my Cubs shirt, which I do nearly every single day, it will now be worn with meaning as it will be worn in solidarity and prayer with all of you. Today I'm in solidarity and prayer with them as they have to fix giants. The principle to learn is this, what God has done, God will do. We could read the text this way, and it is totally appropriate. David is the hero. Goliath is the villain. But as we mature and we grow in faith, our imaginations need to mature with us, and I think the biblical writers might just be wanting to take us into new places in this story. And as we mature and we grow, you know, maybe we think and imagine a little bit more abstractly. And as we do that, maybe there are things in this text that begin to tug on us, which leads to sermon number two, which I call the fanciful. And there are questions to ask when we enter into this sermon, and it's, what am I being urged to think or feel or see or imagine? I find it interesting that the writer of this ancient text starts with a lengthy description of, about, of all things he talks about technology. Last night, Iron Man 2 was on TV, and I was, I was flipping through the channels. This sermon was on my mind. I had gone through it a million times. I saw the clip where there was this statement, everything is achievable through technology, better living, robust health, and the possibility of world peace. This is Howard Stark. This is Tony Stark's dad. And this ancient writer, so many years ago, started with a description of technology, Goliath had a bronze helmet, wore a bronze coat of mail chain, had a bronze leg armor, and had a bronze javelin. He also had a shield bearer to protect him. But the really amazing thing that the writer says is that, that the head of his spear was made of iron. Now, when you read this story, that part, should just, that part should wake you up because the reader should hear this and realize that the Philistines were on the cutting edge technologically. They were known as the Sea Peoples because their land bordered along this, this coastline. I, I got a picture of it for you. And they were building a Pentapolis, which is a collection of five cities that was organized for political and commercial and military reasons. And they had one main resource of production. It was iron. They had moved from the Stone Age into the Bronze Age, and now they were stepping out of the Bronze Age into what was known as the Iron Age. And with this new form of technology, the Philistines, like Howard Stark, believe anything was achievable. The invention of iron has had a dramatic impact on history and culture. It's a unique property. You add a little bit of carbon to it, and you have steel. And steel is the foundation for our whole world. 
The Philistines were incredibly advanced because of iron. They were making architectural modifications to their buildings, their institutions, and their cities. New business ventures were set out, claiming an edge in the, biz- in the production of goods and cookware and art. Agricultural developments had an advantage, and most of all, the military implications for advancement were endless. Everybody who was a Philistine got in on this. Warriors, farmers, sailors, which was convenient as it was a coastal territory, merchants, rulers, cult priests, artisans, and architects all took advantage of this new development. Now, with the exception of his size, the writer's description of Goliath is not about him as much as it is about the technologically advanced military weaponry that he had a hold of. And the whole Philistine army was suited like this. In Israel, there was only one set of armor, and it belonged to King Saul. He was a fair warrior, a bad politician, and a tortured leader. Militarily, Israel was still of the Stone Age. They fought with rocks and sticks and bows and slings. The Philistines, though, were not just advanced this way. They were patriotic. They were God and country people. And like like any other nation, they were trying to establish security in their own geographic region as well as maintain their own ethnic culture and distinction, which is still a battle raging in the U.S. today. And the deity, the God, whom the Philistines credited for this was the God Dagon. He was the god of grain and fishing and resources, and their money said, in Dagon we trust. Dagon provided life for them. Dagon was their defense. Dagon led them. So when we read this story and we listen to this second sermon, you need to know this is not just about a small kid, a young prepubescent boy, and an assassin. This is a story that is a showdown between the gods carried out in human, human events. It's a divine war played out in the lives of real human beings. The Jewish God, who had the name Yahweh, versus the Philistine God, Dagon. The Stone Age versus the Iron Age. Simplicity versus technology. BB guns versus nuclear warheads. Me, little old me, versus my more powerful and threatening neighbor. So, Goliath when you look at it in this second sermon, is simply a caricature. He's the voice of Dagon. Who am I that you would come at me with sticks? What are you, from the Stone Age? And then he began to curse Israel's God. And then David in the second sermon is this caricature caricature of God, the voice of Yahweh, Is there a living God in Israel or no? Have you ever heard anybody talk like this? I would suspect you have. Not long ago, world leaders were tossing back and forth threats about the size of their nuclear arsenal through a new piece of technology called Twitter. Turn on CNN or Fox News or read your Facebook wall or check the positions of the politicians that you will be voting for on Tuesday. 
Is the language you hear similar to that between Goliath and David? Do they talk like Dagon and Yahweh? Does it feel like there is a divine conflict that's being carried out among real-life human beings? This story and our story is undergirded by a primal fear that we have when we see that our neighbor has weapons that we do not, like spears or guns or bombs. And the story is trying to tell us a greater reality. It it forces us to acknowledge that here and now, there is more going on than meets the eye. There is more going on than what is, seems to be right in front of us. In this realm, and then in other realms, war is raging. Paul calls this, these principalities and powers that battle against us. Any philosophy, any propaganda, any institution, or any government that promises security through the destroying of lives is that of Dagon. That is what this text is trying to show us. This text demonizes Goliath because of his sacrilege. Dagon's ways are not the ways of Yahweh. Yahweh is the underdog. And Yahweh is compassionate, forgiving. Yahweh looks for those who have no hope. And when we the story as more mature people, and we look into the story, our primal fear is evoked, it's, it's realized, and we're, we're shocked to see that Yahweh God, not David, is the hero here. And Dagon, not Goliath, is the villain. For thousands of years, the people of God have protected these ancient stories, perhaps as a warning for us, the technologically advanced, we're not necessarily safer. More power and more violence doesn't necessarily mean more security. It could be, it could be that those, the ancients are trying to send us this warning and, and ask us this question. Are we as individuals, are we as citizens of this country, or more importantly, are we as the baptized ones of Christ's church, Are we of the ways of Dagon, or are we of the ways of Yahweh God? Sometimes the scriptures can be striking. Number three, it's what I call the seductive sermon. And this this one's shorter than number two, so you people falling asleep, you'll be happy about this. So the question that we ask when we, when we give the seductive sermon is this, what does this, what does this text tell us as we mature and we grow and as our imaginations can become more abstract, what does this say about the human race? Now, you know, I, I love the underdog part of this story. Yahweh, God, uh, through David, takes victory. It's awesome. And if you're on that side, it, it, this is the great reminder. All Yahweh God needs is a prepubescent boy armed with a rock. I, I love that story. We have an affinity towards that story, and we see ourselves in that story. And in the text, our immediate 
is into the step in the shoes of David. We identify with David. The best movies follow this storyline. Politicians claim that David, that they are David in the battle against the political giants, the political Goliaths. Sports, obviously. It's just wonderful to have this story. And for us, the spiritual people, the religious lesson is this. God uses the insignificant people to do his work and to fulfill his plans. I love that. If you are insignificant like me, God can use you to, to do his work and to fulfill his plans. I think this is true, and I love this. But I find something really troubling. If we know, and we step in as soon as we read this text, we step into David's shoes, and we know this lesson that God uses the insignificant to do his work and to carry out his plans. Why is it that you and I spend every single waking moment of every single day trying to be like Goliath? We like David, but we desire Goliath. Heck, even David wants to be Goliath. In the midst of all the trash talking, you can see it. David becomes Goliath. In fact, he gives this threat, I'm about to kill you. I am going to cut off your head, and I'm going to serve up your bodies and the bodies of your Philistine buddies to the crows and the coyotes. The rock flies. He kills Goliath. And then David, in an act of violent victory, finishes the job by carrying out his promise. In a warrior's rage, he's not even thinking anymore. He runs to the dead corpse of Goliath and cuts the giant's head off with his own sword. Then he lifts the head up, and he carries it with him wherever he goes. I I looked at artists over the centuries, and this is the picture that most of them paint, a picture of David holding up the head of Goliath. He picks it up, and he carries a head, a decapitated head, wherever he goes. And he does this as an act of shame, not just victory, but shame and humiliation. And he wants to send a warning to the neighboring Philistines and everyone that they represent, I am coming after you, and this is what is going to happen to you. You know what I've learned? I've learned that David is an incredibly complex person incredibly complex. A man after God's own heart is also at the same time a man whose rage is carried out in a flash. And this becomes David's whole storyline. Victory comes through violence. It's the Goliath narrative. As the story plays out, if we would continue to read about the life of David, God uses David, but after this victory, he then pursues Goliath's life. He claims the throne eventually, kills everyone who stands against him, steals and rapes the wife of one of his soldiers, killing the soldier in the process. He starts building campaigns, institutes a dynamic political and military system, establishes a new city with technological advancements, and ends up dying with his family in shambles. This is David's life. And the irony is that as king, he was to protect the subjects of the kingdom like a young boy, a shepherd who would protect his sheep. But instead, he becomes a professional killer. David becomes Goliath. 
And like David, we are incredibly complex people. We want to do the will of Yahweh, God, but ambition leads us to be bigger, to be more significant, to establish ourselves as more important, to maintain our own security, and sometimes we'll do it as a people group by justifying violence and we'll depend on technology as our salvation. And when we look at this text through sermon number three, the dark truth is this, like David, we are okay with violence if it comes in the name of God. David's statement doesn't seem to bother us at all. David killed Goliath and then he cut off his head. You know, the decapitation of an enemy, whether that be ancient Israel or the 21st century, is a, it's what's called a spectacle of oogling way for people to participate, for the masses to participate. In 2004, there was a series of video on the, uh, series of video on the internet where people who were captured by ISIS were decapitated. And one of those videos received 15 million hits within the first few minutes of it being uploaded, causing computer crashes, causing computer servers to crash. Decapitation is a theological statement. It, it's kind of a sacramental statement. It's a public statement. It makes, it makes our violent actions holy. It's a way by which human beings speak on behalf of God and literally execute God's law. It would seem that violence in the name of God knows no boundaries. And Christians have done this for generations colonialization in the name of evangelism, slavery, the Inquisition, setting heretics on fire, mass executions of the mentally challenged in Europe, shooting abortion doctors, beating up gay people, the abuse of children, the justification for government atrocities posted on Facebook walls. In the most recent days, it's been Romans chapter 13 that was misquoted to rationalize the separation of children from their parents in order to incite fear. Do not come over here or this too will happen to you. This, my friends, we have to be careful. This is Dagon worship. It is cultish. It stands against everything that Yahweh is about. It reveals our like of David, but our desire... To be like Goliath. This is a scary text. Jesus, in every instance, there's an, in every single instance, he rebuked those who tried to show their allegiance to God through violence. And in this text, if you read it this way, David, not Goliath, is the villain. But I got good news for you. Because Yahweh God is the hero. You know, Jewish theology insists, as Vern told us, that there is one God, Yahweh. It means I am that I am. But this idea, this doctrine took some, idea, it took some time for, for, for the Jewish people to, to develop. And before this doctrine that there was one God, before it was fully developed, scholars believe that early on in history, the Jewish people served this Yahweh God, but they also affirmed and recognized the reality of other deities. Each nation had their own God that they worshipped, and Yahweh just happened to be Israel's God. And it was understood that each one of these gods had a piece of authority. Each were greedy and powerful. So we could say, 
we could say that, you know, that the people imagined a council of the gods. And around that table sat the different gods of the different nations. The gods of, you know, the Canaanite god Baal and the, and the Baal of Carmel and the god of the Phoenicians and the mighty god Dagon. And then they're way off, way, way, way off there at the end of the table. They don't even have a seat for him. He had to pull up a stool is Yahweh. Each god there took a seat. Yahweh was on a stool. Some were closer to the head of the table. Some had a lot of authority. Some not so much. And usually the power of the gods were demonstrated in the nation with the most power that was the most cunning or the most ruthless or the most advanced. The other gods snickered at Israel's God. They thought he was lower class, lousy, maybe even a little bit pitiful. This God was known around the table as weak because he valued compassion, hospitality, because he was a God of acceptance. This God loved justice, valued mercy, and walked with a heart towards the vulnerable. Israel's God was pathetic in light of other gods, and Israel's God was pathetic in light of other nations. Yahweh got pushed around. He was kind of a loser, and so was Israel. Christians hold to the doctrine of one God, but the adjustment is this, that Jesus of Nazareth is Yahweh God embodied. And Jesus was the ultimate underdog. He was even though David could not continue to be the good shepherd. He was not only loyal to God, but he was one with God. And he did not meet violence with violence, but he stepped into a very violent world. And instead of shouting down his enemies, he shouted these words, Father, forgive them, they have no sense. These books that we're reading during ordinary time, 1 and 2 Samuel, The mother of Samuel, a very poor woman that history should have forgotten, is foreshadowing to the whole story. And she sang a song, and she said, This God will raise up the humble. He will bring down the proud. And this God will establish his new royal line of hope. So I have a question. Which sermon has been for you? Which sermon has bothered you? Which sermon has brought you joy? Because the writers tell one story, but they invite us into imagining it in new ways so that we might know the truth about how this God has decided to save. So the way of God's grace his mercy, his compassion, his freedom, the way God gives us both what we want and what we need is seen in the bloody, shamed, crucified, and then resurrected and glorified Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Anointed One. And this is what his Lord's, this is what his supper represents. He is the king sent to establish a new royal line of hope. And as Hannah says, he he came to set things right. The judges couldn't do it. Saul couldn't do it. David and his sons couldn't do it. We can't do it. And what we can't do, Jesus of Nazareth is capable to do. So we trust in him. As a king, his was a crown of thorns. His throne was a 
cross of murder, his royal sign, one of mockery, and that was nailed above his head. His subjects were those who shamed him. And Jesus said, and I'll remind you again, Father, they have no idea what they're doing. Would you forgive them? We come to the Lord's table every single week as a means of grace. It means that as we take into our bodies the bread and the wine, God is able to do something for us that we are unable to do for ourselves. But I want to let you know this, that when we come to this table, it is a confession. That like in sermon number one, there are lessons to be learned. God is going to fight for our, against our giants. Or sermon number two, we need to be able to see new things in a new way because we have been people who have been living the way of Dagon and now we want to live the way of Yahweh. Or maybe it is a confession that we want to be in sermon number three, like we, like David. We decide, we like David, but we desire to become like Goliath, and we don't want to do that anymore. So when we come to this table, we confess that our priorities are wrong, and his grace is good for us, even is very hard to hear. It, and when we come to this table, we trust that he is capable of forgiving us, even when we have been people who have worshipped the God Dagon for so long. To come to this table and to partake of these elements is an act of trust with this holy God, Yahweh. So we come as a way of confession, and while we might not want it, we are in need of his grace. So I want to remind you that at dinner on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save, he broke bread and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body, which is broken, an act of violence for you. And whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. And then in the same way, he held up the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood. And whenever you drink of this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. Anyone who is interested in putting their trust in this God is invited to their table, to this table. We want no barriers, so I want to let you know that our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic. But when you come, tonight we're going to do it this way. Come down out of the left side of your aisle, and then outside of your row, and then come down our aisle with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. Approach one of these servers, listen to what they have to say, dip the bread into the cup, and then be thankful. You have received, you have heard, and now are recipients of grace. If for any reason you cannot come down our aisle, I just want you to wave at Justin. He's over here, and he will come and bring the elements to you. Again, leave to the left, come down the aisle, and return on the right. And when you are ready, you may come.